Sarah, 46 years old, and Roque, 51 years old. My partner and I are micro-entrepreneurs. For years we were both being extorted, as were other members of my family, because they also had their own businesses. One of my brothers had a laundry service. My sister had a diner in a gang-controlled neighborhood. I helped her, and since she's also a hairdresser, she supported me in my business, which was practically in the same area. Because of the threats they received, my family had to leave everything and come to Mexico first. My first business was a beauty salon. I opened it in 2005 with the money I had at the time. Back in 2006, 2007, the gang started extorting me. At the beginning, I paid the extortion, but everything was going to the dogs. When I refused to continue paying the fee, I started receiving threats over the phone. They told me that if I did not give them what they asked for, they knew where I lived, where my children studied. I closed the business and they robbed me. I saw the robbery as a sign of the real danger I was in. They were already making good on their threats. I had to get out of there and went to another neighborhood. Out of fear, I did not start another business for almost two years. I worked as a secretary, but I lost my job. Since I was on my own, I stayed at home with my children. Out of necessity, in 2012, I reopened my business in a new place. It was back then when I also met Roque. I opened my second business, also a beauty salon, with the benefits from my job. We also opened a small gym. After six months, gang members began to bother us to ask for 2,500 lempiras a month for the two businesses. If they see that you're doing well, the fee increases. Over the time, they demanded 4,000 lempiras a month from us. When you cannot pay, you can negotiate and give them home appliances, for example. After three years, we could no longer pay the extortion fee because we had to pay rent for the premises. We had two employees to pay and everything fell apart. After we closed those businesses, we went to another neighborhood and only opened a small gym. I used to give Zumba and aerobic classes, but the gang members always found us. This last time, we could no longer pay the extortion the threats were already getting more serious because we were constantly on the run. We were lucky because they usually come and kill people who have fled from them. I filed three complaints about the extortion and the threats with the CONADE, with the DPI and with CORE 7. But they did nothing. I went there and just like anywhere they made me wait. Then they took the complaint and said, well, let us see what we can do. They gave me a copy of the complaint, but they did not call me. I did not follow up on the complaints because I felt it was strange that they did not call me. I was afraid of gang ties that may have existed there. I thought, if they do not do anything, it's for a reason. I better avoid problems and just see what happens. We moved to another neighborhood, always in Tegucigalpa. But after a while, I could not stand the situation anymore. We had to separate, my partner stayed in one place, my children in another and I came to Mexico. Those are the circumstances we live in. It is sad because you want to fight and get ahead. But sadly, wherever we go, there's always danger. It is difficult when you have to leave your house and everything you have fought so hard for. Roque is often depressed. It also makes me very sad, but you need to plow through and keep going. I already have legal residence in Mexico because of family ties with my sister. She arrived in Mexico two years ago, but she is no longer here. She left Mexico because she had problems here. 
She applied for asylum in the United States. I spent about a year in Tapachula, working to support my children in Honduras. My youngest son is 21 years old, and we are very close. He would say to me, Mom, I cannot stand being here. I'm afraid that they will find me. That is why Rocky made the decision to come to Mexico, and the two came here together. We stayed in Tapachula for about two more months. It was very difficult. Initially, we were welcomed into a shelter while we were looking for work. Unfortunately, there were too many people there. There was little food, and we slept on the floor in a room without windows. But we said, at least we're not on the street. We have a roof over our heads. There is a guard. It is safe. But my son had to stay behind to look after the suitcases when we would go out to buy a soft drink, some flavored water, or some other food, a sandwich, because the food there was really not very pleasant. It was not that we were making any special requests, but sometimes there was not even food because they had to give preference to the children. It was very difficult to find work. To begin with, you do not have a work permit. The work women normally do there is in bars, in pubs at night, and I was not going to do that. I walked around the center of Tapachula. I went to the stores that had stuff wanted signs. But they said to me, are you not from here in Mexico? No, I said, I'm Honduran. Oh no, just Mexicans, they told me. I managed to get a job in a beauty salon. I got paid little, like a hundred pesos a day. But it is worth not to work. Roque found work as a painter. By the time we had raised some money to move to a quieter place with more space, a large number of Cuban and African migrants had arrived. Rents and food prices skyrocketed, apart from the fact that the places that we could rent, which were cheaper, were already occupied. If you found a place to live, it was only for two people. You could not rent for three. Later, Roque was walking through the center of Tapachula when he stumbled across someone from the gang in Honduras. Following that, we transferred to Mexico City to continue with the asylum process with the coma from here. Finding a job in Mexico City has been difficult. Through some friends, I was offered a job in Celaya, but the job ended and I had to come back here. My son lost his job and Roque also lost his job again. We have been terribly worried. In some places, we had to have recommendations to rent. And if we did not have recommendations, we had to pay three months rent up front. We had no money to pay the deposit or keep up with the rent. In other places, there were three of us, they would not rent to us. It had to be one or two people. Right now, they are kicking us out of the place where we live for the same reason. So we are almost back to where we started. After everything that happened to us in Honduras, this is awful. Only God gives you strength. I dream of being at home, of having peace of mind and having a job to pay for my food and bills. What I have always wanted is to have a space where I can start a business, a beauty salon, to be able to support myself and make some money in case I cannot get a job. In Tegucigalpa, there are several gangs, but two predominate, the MS-13 and the Barrio 18. They divide up the territories. There are areas where the gangs do not allow the extortion of businesses, where they do not allow robberies of product delivery vans because they make money from drug sales. In other words, the gangs act like the police. For example, if my cell phone gets stolen, I would rather go to the gang than to the police, because I know the gang is more likely to get my cell phone back, not the police. 
It is really appalling that in certain areas the population gives gang members legitimacy because they are the ones who protect the neighborhood. These are exceptions, but the gangs are turning into a power that must be respected. For extortion, the gangs tend to use minors. They call them flags. They put them in strategic places and give them a cell phone or a walkie-talkie so they can warn the gang of any movement, be it from the police or from another gang or from the person that they're going to extort. That is their job. They usually recruit under-18s for that. In my country, there are thousands of knee-knees, youth who neither study nor work. The gang pays them about 1,500 lempiras a week and gives them a gun so they feel empowered with money, with a gun, with a cell phone. Sometimes the gang sends the miners to leave the extortion message, but the moment one of them leaves you the message, there's another one talking to the gang on the phone. There are adults and miners, but the miners are the cannon fodder, 15-year-olds and younger, because if they get caught, they know that the law protects them. It is easier for miners to get out of jail. On the other hand, if they get caught, they have their code of silence, because if they get caught and put in jail, their families get money from the gangs. They are well organized. Sometimes I think they keep better track of their accounting than we did in our business. Sometimes they identify themselves by phone or deliver a message to let people know what day they will stop by to collect the payment. The gangs have already reached a level where they're giving scholarships to young people to study law and when they graduate, they'll become the lawyers of gang members. The gangs also recruit people with accounting knowledge to help them with their businesses. They create a profile of you, a business study, so they know roughly how much you can give. And they tell you how much you have to pay and how often. Sometimes it's once a week, sometimes every fortnight, sometimes once a month. And they identify themselves using the name of the gang because for them it is very important to mark their territory, to let it be known who controls it. The problem is that some neighborhoods are divided between rival gang territories, so you do not get extorted by only one group, but by two. That is when it gets worse. There are also people who take advantage of the existence of gangs. They pose as gang members to extort money. But when the gangs find out, they kill them. The gangs have what they call crazy houses. These are the places where they take people to warn them, even to kill them. They have a bat, a wooden stick. They call it Chayan. Most people already know that Chayan exists. They do not know where, but they know that it exists. In some neighborhoods, there's a community center that the gangs control and where they party on Saturdays. If someone gets drunk and causes trouble, they say, do you want to go dancing with Chayan? No? Then control yourself. If he does not control himself and starts causing trouble, they take him to dance with Chayan. Dancing with Chayan means that they beat him, but they only do this twice. The third time, they kill him. I know this because some of our childhood friends are involved in gangs and word gets around. Sara, for example, had an employee whose brother was killed and whose mother was beheaded because she had a business and agreed to sell drugs. Sometimes the gang kills you because you spend the drug money or you do not hand it all over to the gang. So, through those people, you hear things. It is no secret. Gang members prefer that it is not a secret so that you are more afraid of an attack. As I said before, if my cell phone gets stolen, I go to a friend who's friends with someone else, and that guy is friends with gang members. I tell him, look, do me a favor, my cell phone just got stolen. What cell phone is it? Where did they assault you? Okay, take it easy. The gang members go looking for him, and if they can find the guy, they take him to the crazy house. They take the cell phone from him, beat him, and return the cell phone to me without charging me a cent. That is what they do in some places, so they gain strength. But it also depends on what level of relationship you're getting into with the gang members, because the more of a relationship you have with them, the more of a commitment you have with them. That is the problem. For example, right now I'm worried about a friend. 
Back in my country, when the electricity is not paid, the meter gets switched off. When you owe more money, it gets cut at the post, and you need to reconnect it. So the gang members told him, plug it in. No need to ask the E-N-E-E for permission. We authorize you. If they come here, we are here. Here's the decision. Do I do it through the ENEE, the National Electric Power Company, as it should be done, or do I save money and invest it in my business? If I accept the proposal from the gang members, I will be protected, but I will also have an obligation to them. Why do the police not do something to shut down the crazy houses? Let's start with who the president is. The president's brother is imprisoned in the United States. The president is the boss of the entire mafia in my country, and the armed forces are colluding with him. You rely more on the gangs to report a crime than on the police, because if I go to the police, I'm not sure if they're honest or not. The police officer goes and tells the gang straight away, look, a guy called Roque came to see us. He lives over there, and he filed a complaint against you. People will say, he turned up dead. He was such a good person. He didn't mess with anyone. The problem is if you make the complaint in the wrong place. After Sada left for Mexico, I opened a shop selling secondhand clothes and shoes. Sometimes I also got office jobs, so I combined both things. The business was helping me pay for university because I was studying local development. At one stage of my life, I fell into the clutches of alcohol. I've been sober for four years now. When you have an alcohol problem, you're desperate for a drink. You try to get one anywhere. At midnight, the places that sell alcohol are not great places, but you do not care if you can calm your anxiety. The place where I used to go to buy alcohol was near a corner where they sell drugs. I tried marijuana a couple of times, but it was not my thing. But some friends said to me, buy me a marijuana joint. So I got to know some MS-13 members. At some point, the gang members sent me an acquaintance, a relative of those who were most involved in selling drugs. They looked for me because they knew that I had bought alcohol in that area and had a shop selling clothes and shoes. Businesses like that are places that people go to and they serve as fronts for the gangs. They wanted me to sell drugs at night, and in the morning they were going to pay me 100 lempiras a day, that is 3,000 lempiras a month. With 3,000 lempiras a month, plus any other income that you may have, you can continue to study without problems. But accepting that is a commitment. I told him that I was going to think about it, but Sarah had already received threats, so I had no choice but to say no. I thought, let us see what they say if they leave me alone. But they told me I had to pay protection for the business. I did not want to give them a single cent, so I thought I had better give away all the clothes and prepare my trip to Mexico. Now we have some peace of mind, but in Honduras, we had our house. We had two almond trees, and sometimes squirrels would eat there. It's a magical world that you see there. We slept in a large bed and had a plasma TV. We had those amenities. It is not that we're going to cry because we do not have a television, but why do I have to rent a place if I have a house? Now we have problems with our lease. Sara went to work in Celaya while I stayed in Mexico City with her son. At that time, the three of us were working, but things changed. The three of us had problems. So the most logical thing is that we all stay in the same place. We want to be together as a family, but it's also for economic reasons. Right now, we're facing many limitations. The owners of the house have asked us to leave, but the problem is that when we try to rent a place, they ask us for two, three months rent or for recommendations. I don't want to be in Mexico anymore. I'm a hardworking man, but I have three hernias and three spinal discs. Although I want to work in removals or construction, I can't. So I look for office jobs. In one place, I was offered a job as an administrative and human resources assistant. First, they asked for 250 pesos for the photo ID. You think, why not? I'm going to get my money back. 
because they offered me 1,500 pesos base salary plus performance bonuses. I mean, they paint such a rosy picture that you fall for it. Then they said, you are not going to work in sales, but in order for you to demonstrate your problem-solving capacity, we need you to sell two sets of pillows worth 1,500 pesos each. That is when I handed over the money for our rent, the 3,000 pesos, plus 250 pesos more. I was the only foreigner there, but nine Mexicans did the same. Apparently, the pillows were bought in Tepito, but that was not the problem. When I started looking into it, I realized that the company didn't exist. It was a fraud. But how do you get your money back? So, I'm disappointed. I want to get out of here now. In Honduras, the first thing that needs to change is the government. But there's also the scourge of corruption. There's no point in changing the government if corruption is not fought. The problem is that corruption is encouraged by the UN, by the OAS, because they endorse governments, because the United States interferes in the OAS. I consider Luis Almagro, the current OAS Secretary General, to be a puppet of the United States. They're the ones who've endorsed the current president of Honduras, which is incredible, since everyone knows that he's the brother of a drug trafficker. That structure must be changed, because if that structure of corruption is tied to drug trafficking and to the police, which is the body that should suppress violence and organized crime, then they're all colluding with each other. If you control corruption, organized crime, and violence, Honduras would become a safe country and you can tackle poverty. The armed forces need to be dissolved, because they're the ones that support the current president. Clearly, this guy either wants to finish his term or he wants four more years, because while he's in power, he's untouchable. You need to strengthen the police to combat violence and promote health and education more. Create more hospitals and schools. Honduras must be refounded. The country needs to make a new social pact. I know Mexico puts a lot of effort to getting people to understand that migration is a right, that Mexicans also migrate. But there should be more campaigns to raise awareness among people, among companies. It is companies that hire and that sometimes discriminate out of ignorance. Landlords should also know that they can trust us.